completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Ask yourself this question. When you see your coworker get up from their desk at five o'clock, is there a small part of you that secretly believes they're slacking off? Your answer is likely to inform where you stand in the conversation we're having in this episode. Today, I'm talking to David Heinemeyer Hansen. David is the creator of Ruby on Rails and the founder and CTO of Basecamp. And recently, he called out the entire tech industry for glorifying the culture of overworking. So, whether you love the grind or hate the hustle, let's get into it. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. You recently wrote an article um, on Medium about trickle-down workaholism. Can you, very briefly, for those who haven't, haven't read it, explain what your concept is there? Sure. So if you're an executive at a company and you're employing workaholism on your own and you're working 80, 100 hours or 120 hours a week or whatever crazy numbers people are spouting as uh, – these uh, achievements that they're supposed to be making by putting in wild hours. Yeah. It doesn't stop there, right? Like It's not compatible having an executive put in 100 hours a week and then all the workers who work beneath that executive, they're just having a completely wonderfully balanced life of 40 hours a week. Yeah, that does not of happen. Not. Yeah, It doesn't happen at all, right? Like it, what, what happens is at uh, 9 o'clock in the evening when the executive has some grand old idea, they want to jump on a call and talk it out, or they want to shoot up some emails and they expect to get replies. So the workaholism of the people in charge of the leadership trickles down and and seeps into all aspects of the organization. And that I find is just so much worse. I mean, at least at an executive level, especially at sort of a CEO or founder level, you could say to some extent that people are choosing it. I don't think they always are. But what's very clear certainly is that a CEO or an executive in general who puts in these crazy hours will imply by their role model and by their actions that this is the kind of company that we run. That then makes it just that anyone else who, who lives below that, who did not choose it on their own, who did not willfully saying, oh, yeah, hey, can I sign up for 80 or 100 hours a week? They kind of just get forced into it. Because no boss is, is sitting there telling, well, some bosses maybe, but not many bosses are sitting there telling their direct reports, you have to work until midnight tonight. But there are signs hung up around the office that talk about the hustle and talk about you know the glory in, in hard work. What's interesting to me is you sort of talked about it as a quiet culture that, that, that seeps in, you know, in indirect ways. It really becomes a paradigm. Like this is just how we work. It doesn't need to be extolled all the time that like, oh, I should say you have to work until midnight or whatever. It's just implied. Right. When work happens around the clock, when executives are sending out emails and scheduling calls or following up on things in all hours of the day or during the weekend, people pick up clues very easy. Um, they're not that dumb, right? They know that this is what the the leadership wants, and they'll try their best to give them that so that they can, A, keep their job, B, be in line for promotion, C, simply fit into a work culture, right? Like, it's very hard to show up with this notion of a balanced lifestyle if you see all around you 
that people are just not embracing that at all. Yeah, peer reinforced as well. So we've talked a little bit about how tough that is nowadays, but I want to talk about whether or not things used to be better in this front. Was there ever a time when you saw founders and creators having a more reasonable expectation for how they worked? I think things have absolutely gotten worse. And I think it's technology's fault. Huh. Tell me more. This is the flip side of this wonderful, always on instant message apps, out the wazoo, email, chat. There are so many ways we can now reach and collaborate with each other that does not require that we're physically present in the same office at the same time. Yeah. So the natural boundaries that used to be in place were, okay, you might leave the office at seven, but then you left your case files and whatever at the office and you went home. And for someone to actually call you on the telephone to talk about work, that just wasn't convenient. It wasn't expedient. People, sure, did it to some extent, but now it's just so much easier. You can reach anyone at any time and get a really high fidelity conversation going, which is wonderful for certain things, right? Like at Basecamp and me personally, I'm a big proponent of remote work. Right. And remote work is being enabled by these technologies. But the, the underbelly of that is that it also encourages or need, at least enables people to use those same technologies that can be used for the good of remote work and then employ them in the almost evil pursuit of 24-7, always on, always responsible kind of work culture. And I think that that just really has gotten worse and is getting even more worse, I think. We're getting more sucked into this notion that that we're just always connected. And this is where I really get offended when companies then pick up that mantle and, and embrace that as though that was something good. Right. Microsoft, for example, had a campaign about, oh, more and more people are now working from their toilet or from their couch when they're supposed to watch a movie with their spouse or from their kid's soccer game or at cocktail hour. And they were saying like, oh, isn't this great? Like, this is what you can do with Office 365 now. Yeah. You can check in on your Excel spreadsheets while you're ignoring your son's soccer game. What? Like this just to me seems like just a dystopian black mirror version of, of this prosperity future we were supposed to be living in. And you go like, this is crazy. Why are we willingly adopting such a distorted view of, of work? And why can't we set boundaries? And why can't we say stop? And why can't we just say work needs to fit inside the box of the 40 hours that most industrialized countries have adopted? And that's it. And then you want your employees and you want yourself to have full real lives outside of that where they're not constantly being interrupted in their uh, life by work creeping in and seeping in into sort of all these places where it doesn't belong. Yeah. And that is the paradox, right? Because I think if you ask any of these companies, you know, Microsoft or Slack or, or any of them, they will say, no, we're enabling flexible work. We're an allowing you to raise a child and work from home while maintaining your career. Uh, you know, on the one end of that spectrum is flexibility, but on the other end of it is complete and total inflexibility. Uh, and it's, it's sort of brought about by the same thing. Yeah, and I think it, it's it's funny you mention it in terms of like, um, oh, we're enabling this. I, I see the same arguments about the gig economy, for example. Oh, right. Uber is enabling all these um, independent um, entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, when you go like, yeah, there's something to that. There's something to the flexibility of picking your own hours. And then there's uh, 
underbelly of that, that's just a dystopian notion of outsourcing all liabilities to your workers and denying them the benefits of, of full-time employees and, and all these other negative consequences that come off it. And I think that that's, in both cases, just where the conversation is, is severed. Uh, you need to have the conversation as a whole piece. Here are all these benefits we could extract from these tools. We can enable remote work. We can enable flexible hours. But it's balanced by these dangers that companies and executives and leaderships will take advantage of these tools and actually make things worse than if we didn't have them at all. I think actually there are plenty of people who today live in a always connected uh, environment who would actually go through the sort of, okay, the inflexibility of the office, the inflexibility of having all your work at a desk, but then being able to say, okay, at least I can disconnect. At least the weekend is mine. Yeah. So it does seem like more and more people are talking about this now. Do you think we're headed towards a moment? Do you think there is a, an opportunity where we start to reverse this or are voices just talking louder than they have been before? i always have hope. I always have hope that we can realize the error of our ways and, and arrive at a better place. I think there are lots of aspects of work life, and especially in the tech industry, where you sort of got ignored for so long. You take another uh, topic right now, diversity in, uh, in tech companies and in hiring. For a long time, it just simply wasn't a topic, or it was a topic amongst uh, a fringe of a few people who carried on a valiant fight to create awareness about this, but were broadly ignored. Now, all of a sudden, it's on, on everyone's lips. Right, yeah. And that is a, a great example, I think, of, of momentum building slowly but surely over years and the voices getting amplified and multiplied to the point where they're so loud that you simply can't ignore them. And I hope that the same eventually will happen with workaholism and particularly trickle-down workaholism a lot of times change comes about not because necessarily companies and executives have a true change of heart that they in their uh, soul have realized the error of their ways and right. trying to change things. No, they change things because there's pressure that forces them to change things. Yeah. Right. And that pressure uh, that needs to build and it needs to be sustained over a long period of time until there's no other option until being a tech company that glorifies and in subtle ways, forces your workers to work 60, 80, 100 hours a week until that gets torn down, until the role models and the banner carriers like Marissa Mayer saying, oh, yeah, you can certainly work 120 hours a week if you're just strategic with your bathroom breaks. Right. Just get laughed out of the room as preposterous yeah. and not elevated as some sort of hero in our industry, right? Like We need to make it basically not cool to glorify workaholism, not cool to imply that that's the only way you can build a business and not cool to push that upon uh, employees or, or other people in your organization. Basically just not cool at all, right? Like I think right now there is still this sheen of cool. Right. It is seen as enviable that, oh, here are these entrepreneurs who are risking They're everything, badasses. giving up everything, yeah. right? The fact that we're we're still so far down, right? These voices are still so few and far in between that even companies like Apple can promote uh, ads like uh, the recent debacle about their Planet of the Apps thing they got going, where one of the uh, promos was from an entrepreneur saying, oh yeah, I'm working so hard on my business, I hardly have time to see my kids, but this right, is just the yeah. risk you have to take. 
and you go, what again? That's crazy. Really? Like this, that's what Apple wants to promote and stand behind the fact that, uh, some of the entrepreneurs on one of their shows are glorifying the fact that they're neglecting their kids. I mean, again, what the fuck? So where does the pressure need to come from? Does it come from the frontline workers? Does it come from the funders? Does it come from the customers of these companies? I hope it comes from all angles, right? I think that that's usually how you build a broad coalition that actually results in change. It's when you have multiple stakeholders all going, yeah, okay, we can't keep on with this anymore. So Oftentimes, I think where it starts is exactly at the at the worker level. There's I don't I'm not holding my breath, for example, for VCs to all of a sudden come to some realization that this uh, role model they've been pushing on founders of of constant work and total dedication is wrong, right? Like right. they're not going to be first in line for the epiphany. First in line, I think, is is for workers to realize this is crazy and it's not productive. I think that's the other aspect of this whole conversation that. It doesn't even work. Yeah. Like, even if you just look at it from a functional perspective, can you force uh, programmers, designers, writers, creatives, anyone who have to do deep thinking, critical, creative work, can they do a good job of that if they're working 80 or 100 hours a week for months or years on end? I think unequivocally the answer from both research and anecdotally is no. Like that's just not how you create great products in many cases. That's how you create errors, that's how you create bugs, that's how you create embarrassing mistakes. And most of the, the true breakthroughs, they, they come when people are well-rested, um, well-motivated, and, and kind of taken care of. Yes, there are all these examples of, uh, I think recently now, there's a, a new book out on um, on Apple and the iPhone about like how Steve Jobs was pushing his engineers so hard that like marriages were breaking left and right, mm-hmm. people were sleeping under the desk. And, and what usually happens then is that people apply the um, halo um, effect to that, right? They go like, oh, well, the iPhone is the most um, important, perhaps, and popular consumer product of all time. It was created in these ways. Therefore, it follows if you want to create the next iPhone, you have to work in these ways. Do we really believe that um, Steve Jobs and his amazing engineers would not have produced the iPhone or that wouldn't have happened if instead of working 100 hours a week, they were just working 40 and maybe they took another six months or nine months? Some people because might. Because these paradigm-changing yeah. breakthroughs, right? They, they're going to happen regardless, right? So. I think it's just, it's a very shallow understanding when, when we apply this halo effect to explain, oh, workaholism is needed if you want to do big, grand, big things. So because the antidote is so, um, anecdote, excuse me, is so powerful here, do we need more research that sort of underscores the, the long game and underscores working in a sane way? Or are there things that you could point to today that say it really isn't that effective? Well, I think actually... I should say the anecdote is so powerful because the story is so powerful. And in many ways, real data and real science and real inquiries into this is not going to change the narrative. What we need is new stories and different stories telling um, an alternate path, which is why I and others are kind of trying to promote at least our story and say, do you know what, to create Basecamp, we didn't do any of these crazy things. To create a, a company that's uh, generated millions of dollars in profits, have millions of customers living very full and satisfied lives and having 
big impacts in our pockets of the industry, you can do all these things and still maintain a 40 hour work week. Because I think part of the problem is that the, the narrative is so dominated by these cases and tales of the entrepreneurs working hundred hours a week that people simply aren't hearing any alternatives. They aren't hearing about the people who go home at five and yeah. who take the weekend off. Or as in, in our case, during the summer, we take three days off in the weekend, right? Like those stories are just not very well distributed. So it's hard to fault people from believing that, okay, well, if, if I want these trappings of success, I have to do as these anecdotes are telling me. Um, and they're just doing so because they're, they're not really enlightened to the fact that there, there are many other stories that tell a very different picture. They're just not very well broadcast. It's also that they're, they're just not as sexy, right? I mean, what is it that makes stories about working your ass off so appealing and stories about being reasonable and living a full life less? I think it just plays to this fairness myth. It plays to the fairness myth that this person is successful because they put in these ludicrous sacrifices. Therefore, they deserve their success and their sport. Oh, it's a hero story. Yeah, I think that hero story serves a lot of different interests. It serves the supposed hero themselves who can now champion like, I did this by my own hands and therefore I deserve all of this. And it serves the story of of simply the story, right? Like the hero the story is just a great template for, for telling stories that people are willing to hear. In many ways, the, the counter story is a little boring, right? Like, yeah. yeah, they created this wonderful product and they went home at five and they were there for their kids growing up and they had hobbies outside of work and, and they did all of these normal things. Not only is that not that compelling of a story, I mean, I think it's a compelling story. Sure, I think it's yeah. an interesting story in large part because it's a counter narrative. Like we've heard so goddamn many hero tales now about people who did it all by themselves, that that's kind of long since become a cliche and, and uh, supposedly boring story is actually the, the unique angle on it. But I also think the, the trouble with that is then perhaps you have a harder time explaining why some people make it and others don't. Yeah. And those explanations often lie in all sorts of other factors that can't be attributed to our hero, right? They lie in things like luck and timing and simply being better and skill yeah. and all sorts of nuances that I think can be uncomfortable for a lot of people to explore, right? Like it's one thing to sit on the couch or in your job or what I'm saying like, oh yeah, I could probably have been an entrepreneur too if I wanted to sacrifice my family and put in 120 hours a week, but I'm not going to do that. So I could be at peace with, with where I am. Versus if you compare that with the fact that others are making these things happen without putting in the 120 yeah. hours, without sacrificing their family. Puts it out of reach. Perhaps you have to ask different questions of yourself that are uncomfortable in different ways. So I think it's just, it's so easy. The easy path is to tell this and perpetrate this uh, hero myth. So, of course, that's the natural trajectory that we're on, and it requires a whole lot more force to to change the path of that. God, I think that is so interesting. It, you're right. It is a kind of a lazy oversimplification of what makes someone successful, um, and it and it does sort of negate all of the more complexity that falls behind that. That is, you know, the reality of actually building a business is sometimes you win and lose based on luck. And sometimes you win and lose based on things that are harder to quantify than just hours at the desk. Where it's also just funny to me is that 
this focus on the amount of hours put in um, neglects the story about all the people who put in the same number of hours and didn't succeed. Yeah. Because that is the vast, vast, vast majority of people. And the pain right? like of that. Look at the exactly. The pain of that. And if you then go like, well, maybe that was all for naught. Maybe the success of your business or the failure of your business did not hinge on whether you put in uh, 40 hours a week. 420 hours a week. It hinged on other things like, did you have a good product that people were willing to buy? Yeah, was the idea good? Yeah, exactly. Like putting in raw number of hours is just not the most relevant part of it. And where this really ties into a, another thing I'm, I'm passionate about is, is just general productivity. People have such a focus on the quantity of hours. Oh, can I do more if I work 60? Can I do more if I work 80? And they don't focus at all on the quality of those hours. All hours are not created equal. The quality of the kind of hour you get if you sit in an open office, loud with people of all different departments uh, on the phones or having conversations or, or whatever, and that hour is squeezed in between meetings on the one hand and meetings on the other hand, that's a very low quality hour. If you compare the quality of an hour with that of one that comes in a series of five, beautifully uh, extracted from any interruptions in a quiet office or home where you can close the door and control your environment, you know what? That's where the 10x factor lays. Yeah. If you can just get a handful of really high quality hours every day, you can make amazing progress. Like when I look at my own work, I work about 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. I don't get 40 hours of super quality hours, right? Like I have interruptions like anyone else, but I try to minimize them such that out of any given day, if I just get four, or if I'm lucky, five really high quality hours, that's all I need. I think in many cases, that's all anyone needs if they're working in creative domains where the measure of progress is more tied to sort of intellectual breakthroughs and creativity rather than just sheer force. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about kind of the broader concepts here. What, what I'd like to do is actually talk about your story, because when you look into even the comments on your original post on this, there was this sort of tone of like, hey, it must be nice to be on the other side of success and looking back and saying this, but you have lived this. Can you tell me where you struggled with this or where you um, made the decision to work less or work more? Sure. It's funny you bring it up because exactly often the, the counter when I share the story, oh, at Basecamp, we work 40 hours a week during the, the winter. And during the summer, we actually only work 32 hours a week. People say, yeah, that's easy for you to say now. Now right, you're, you're successful. successful. But what did you do in the beginning? Didn't you work 80 hours a week when you guys were first forming Basecamp, for example? And and thankfully for the consistency and, and congruence of our story, uh, that isn't true. When we started Basecamp, um, we had even less time to work on it than we do now. Basecamp was started as a side project. Um, we had a design consultancy at the time. I was working from Copenhagen, Denmark as a student, enrolled at the Copenhagen Business School. And I was dedicating 10 hours per week, not mm -hmm. 10 hours a day, 10 hours a week to do the programming and technical aspects of Basecamp. And those were some pretty extreme constraints, but these were the constraints that we were living under. And at the time, they didn't seem that that crazy. We simply put ourselves in situations where we could make meaningful progress with 10 hours of technical expertise per week, plus um, some number of hours of design expertise per week. And then arriving at a product that was appealing to 
plenty of customers, enough for us to to get this thing off the ground. Um, and that's how we continued for, for about a year. And about a year after selling that product, it did well enough that we could focus on it full time. Yeah. So by the time we kind of got to to the full-time stage, 40 hours a week already seemed like a complete splendor. We were used to 10 hours a week right. and all of a sudden we had four times as much. I mean, what are we going to do with all this time? Basecamp um, and the company around it was really forged into these ways because of, of that origin story. And I think that that uh, helps explain the habits that we, we formed because I think that those habits you form in the early days are just incredibly important and they're very hard to change. So when you're starting a new company, if you're forging that in habits of working 10 or 100 hours uh, or 80 or 100 hours a week, it's very hard to turn the clock back on that. It's very hard, even when you get to the point of quote unquote success, to dial it back because you will have sort of ingrained these habits, not just in your own personal life, but in the organization as a whole. And that becomes just simply part of the, the grain that you have to work with. And changing that after the fact is just really, really tough. Yeah, I would imagine almost impossible. I can't think of a company that um, had a reputation for working crazy hours and then rolled that back. Exactly, because it's just it's so hard to change habits once they've been uh, layered in and ingrained and repeated over years, right? Which is why it's so important for us to present better role models for people who are starting companies just that they don't get off on this wrong foot thinking that the only way they can survive or succeed is if they put in the crazy hours because they're going to then live with that habit for the rest of their life. Yeah. And that's just a travesty because as as I contend that not only is it just unnecessary, I think it's it's harmful and hurtful for all the people who then end up being part of that organization later on. That doesn't look like progress to me. And I think we live in such an age of, of splendor and opportunities and possibilities that if we're willingly just walking into such a dystopian notion that the only thing that can be in your life is work, then, I mean, I just can't make sense of it. Can I ask you a question? Would you start a business today knowing that this is sort of the broader culture? Or would you start Basecamp again in today's climate? I, I would, uh, hopefully under the same guise and, and the same awareness of, of these dangers and these pitfalls. I mean, Basecamp is not that unique. There are plenty of other companies who actually work in these same ways. They generally just don't get written up in the press. They generally don't make for a compelling cover story. They just quietly go on with their life and that kind of just works, right? Yeah. So I think it's not as niche as, um, as some proponents of workaholism would like to present it to be. It's simply just under... Celebrated. Promoted. Yeah, under celebrated. The fact that the, we don't have this culture of of looking at the person who goes home at five to be with their kids or enjoy their hobbies or whatever else they want to do as someone who's successful, right? Yeah. Like that's often confined to like, oh, you just have a job. You're not really passionate about the mission. Um, all this other bullshit language that we use to excuse workaholism with. Um, and I think that that's what we really need to change. We need to change the narrative. We need to change the words. We need to change our own models. Uh, and we need to put out a much more positive image of what it looks like to be a successful entrepreneur who runs a company in a calm and measured way that doesn't consume the lives of neither the entrepreneurs themselves or their workers in whole. Yeah, that is the other thing that like theme that I saw in the responses to your post, which is 
no, I'm passionate about my job. I love my job and the equivalency of, you know, matching passion with amount of hours worked as being kind of a, a recurring theme. Let's say that you are not the head of a company. How can you encourage your managers and their managers and sort of the people in the middle of a company, not the VC, not the founder, to make rest and normal life a priority to actually turn back the clock? Or can you? It's tough. Can, it's should tough. you just leave? I think if, if you're situated um, inside an organization who's sort of fully embraced and fully devoured this uh, workaholic narrative, then it, it's quite tough to push uphill against that. I remember when I worked at a, at a Danish startup back in the early 2000s, back in Copenhagen, and there was this one guy who would sometimes do these work benders where he would just work through the night, right? Okay. And he would always get praise from the top the day after like oh look at you pulled it off you made it happen yeah john right like look like he's really dedicated to the company like he really put in the hours like basically saying like this is a role model but then all the rest of us could see that okay like john could put in the the 16 or 20 hours but then the rest of his week was blown right like his week was blown because he did this mad sprint and and you then go like well what is it we're doing here? Is it a, is it a one-time mad sprint? Do we win if, if someone puts in like one really good day and a half of work? Or do we win if people put in like weeks and months and even years of consistent good work? Once you create an awareness that, that this is happening and this is not actually a good thing, maybe you point out that late. When John was working at 4 a.m. in the morning, like not only was John not able of working the next day or the next day after that either in a, any performant way. But the rest of the team actually had to clean up after John. And like all these bugs are tied to yeah. that one all night vendor, right? Yeah. Um, then you can start just pointing out the productivity aspects of this. that It just doesn't work. So I want to tell you about a thought process that just ran through my head because you're going to laugh at it. It's hilarious. So you're, you're talking and I'm thinking like, God, I'm getting excited. And I'm like, this could actually be a really good recruiting technique. Their talent is so hard to come by in the tech sector right now. And people are drawn to companies with interesting cultures. And if you really did believe this and you really did adapt your culture to allow people to go home and live their lives, that you should be out there talking about it and writing about it, just as people talk about remote work today and recruiting. And so I got all excited about this. And then there was this instant turnover in my brain that went, but yeah, then we get a lot of applicants who just really don't want to work hard. <laughs> And I was like, wait a second, I'm missing the whole point of, of everything we just talked about. And certainly you probably would get applicants who just don't want to work hard, but you could probably also get some some really exceptional people who have also come around to this line of thinking. I, I think it is this paradigm that really just perverts all other aspects of this working, how we hire people, how we retain them, what we value, what we put forth as, as role models. And, and I think even more to the core of it, I think it goes to a reflection of what do we believe of humans in general? Are there these masses of people out there who just want to put in mediocre, crappy work and they apply to all these companies and like the right. chief role amongst companies is to uh, ward off these hordes of undeserving yeah. it's uh, way overstated. Probably not, right? Like, in, in fact, if, if you look at the science of motivation and, and flow and so on, uh, most people want to do great work. Uh, the times when 
they end up not doing these things and not working quote unquote hard, it's not because there's something inherently flawed in their nature. It's because they're put in a situation where it just seems pointless, right? Mm-hmm. The other aspect of this working hard is working hard towards what? Like, why are we working hard? What are we working on? Is this actually meaningful? Is this project that I'm pouring all of my working hours Your whole life into, into, is this yeah. actually going to move the needle? Is it actually going to have an Im- positive impact on at least just the company, if not the world at large? I think a lot of cases where you find people who do not, quote unquote, work hard, it's because the environmental uh, factors are just not there. Either they work with, with crappy, unrealistic bosses that send them on death marches or suicide missions where all this work just ends up going to waste, or there are simply other structural problems in the company or the projects that they're working on. Far too little time and attention, in my opinion, is spent on examining the quality of the work environment. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking a lot about work. I want to end on a question about life. The funny thing about this conversation that we've been having is we're talking about stress levels over time at work, but you have perhaps the most stressful hobby, I think, of all time, which is race car driving. Can you tell me what's something that most people don't know about race car driving? Why is that your release? And is there any part of it that's not stressful? Because that would make me panic. Yeah, it's funny because I actually see it the opposite way. When I get into a race car and I put it on the track in anger and I focus on going as fast as I possibly can, everything else disappears. All (laughs) other concerns or worries or thoughts about what I need to do tomorrow or next week or following up on this project or that project, they just disappear by necessity because I simply don't have the brain power to process all of that at the same time trying to go as fast as I can and not crash a car. Entering that zone or that flow state is something that I think most creative people are, are constantly chasing. I try to do it all the time with, with work in general, get into a flow state with programming where you kind of lose a little bit track of, of time and place and you're just really engaged in the problem that you're trying to solve. That is by plenty of academics yeah. account where a lot of people find true happiness. There's these moments of total immersion that, uh, that just brings a really deep satisfaction to life. Yeah. I was going to say there actually, it's a very strong parallel to everything you just said about work where the ideal state would be that in work, um, and in uh, hobbies or life that wherever you're, you are, you're able to get into that flow state of focus. You're able to put everything into that one moment or the thing ahead of you. And the thing that enables you to do that is that there's an end point to that and that you can come up for air and you can take a break from that and then go back to it and again, be wholly consumed by it. But you can't do that continuously with a million distractions while multitasking. Absolutely. And I think that that's also why, for me, uh, I love driving a race car and I would absolutely hate to do it full time. Uh, The value of these hobbies, of a lot of things that I care deeply about, not just driving a race car, but photography or or reading or whatever. None of these things are things I would want to do for 12 hours a day. Um, The value to me is that I get to sort of indulge in them in appropriate portions, right? Like that there's some portion sizing to it and I don't have to stuff myself and gorge on just a single activity and let that consume all of life. Mm-hmm. But there's so many wonderful things that we can choose to, to spend our limited time on 
uh, in this life, and, and we should try more of it. I think I'm a better business person because I have a diversified set of interests and hobbies. Many of the best decisions we've made for Basecamp and the business have come as a consequence of taking time away from the business. Right? Mm-hmm. You need that broad perspective, and that broad perspective is so much easier to attain when you have some perspective, when you have some distance. All right, David, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. I really appreciate you deciding to get immersed in a conversation with me. Thank you. It was my pleasure indeed. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.